going to talk a little bit today about a daddy, a father, and what that means. But first I have to tell you that um, when my two daughters were born, Allison, who is Peter's wife, and they're, by the way, on a mission trip right now. Peter will be back next week. And Michael Ann, my younger daughter, from the moment those two girls were born, they had me wrapped around their pinky. And very soon they learned that if they came and they sat on my lap and they batted their eyes, they could have anything in the world. It was in my power to give them. Because I had no defense against them. When they asked for something, it's a good thing their mother could say no because otherwise I'd be totally bankrupt and they'd have everything. Uh, I just couldn't. I, they had me wrapped right there. There was nothing in the world I wouldn't do for them. They were daddy's girls. Now, as there are worse things than being a daddy's girl or a daddy's boy. To not be one is pretty bad. I mean, you, you, you want to know that your father adores you, that your father would stop at nothing for you. And so to have that kind of an experience, this is my daddy, he would do anything for me, that's key. God declares that you are the apple of his eye. And it was mentioned uh, during the baby dedication and, and all that, that God has no grandchildren. He has all children. All of us are his sons and his daughters. And that means we're all daddy's girls and daddy's boys. The problem is that there are circumstances in life, in this sinful world in which we live, that cause us to disbelieve what we know is true. And that is that we are the apple of, God, of God's eye. That we are a daddy's girl, a daddy's boy. When, when life knocks us down, it's hard to feel that. It's hard to know that. It's hard to understand that we are precious in his sight. Today we have a story about two females. Two, one, a young woman and another, an older woman. Both of whom were daddy's girls. One knew it and the other didn't. So let's take a look here, if we would, if you'd open your Bible to Luke's Gospel, the 8th chapter. We're going to start with verse 40. Verse 40 says, And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had been waiting for him. He had been at Capernaum, uh, a little village right on the, the Sea of Galilee, and he'd been teaching and preaching, and finally he got in the boat, and that night they made the, the, uh, the trip across, uh, across the water, and there they went to the Gentiles, and when he got there, uh, first of all, there was a big storm on the, on the, on the lake as well, you know, which um, he was asleep in the boat and everybody thought they were going to die. And Jesus woke up and said, peace be still, and it was cool. But he got there and he cast a demon out of a man and th sent the demons into the pigs. And the pigs ran across the cliff and they said, please go home, leave us alone. And so he got back in the boat, but he told the man who had been possessed, tell everyone about this. Tell everyone you know of how, what God has done for you. Got back in the boat. And when he got back, people at Capernaum in Galilee were waiting for him. They wanted him to come back. They were loving his teaching. They loved what he was doing, how he was affecting their lives, how he was healing the sick, how he was speaking peace and hope and comfort to them. They were waiting for him. One in particular was waiting for a very special reason. Verse 41, and there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue. And he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. First of all, to be an official of a synagogue, most every town had a synagogue. Um, it, it, sometimes it was someone's home that served as a synagogue, a wealthy person in the village or the, the, the best off person. And other times it would be a special building that they had created 
just as a synagogue. This was a place of education. They would educate children there, but it was also a place for the Sabbath worship services. They would come, they would read the scriptures, they would discuss things together there in the synagogue. And usually there was a ruler kind of serving as, as a pastor, but the one who administered what would be there, what would not. And that was usually someone who was uh, fairly well off, who had some money, who was connected with the folks in Jerusalem, and so he knew the priest and, and this, the people of the Sanhedrin and that sort of thing. And there was a good relationship there as they worked together. That was Jairus. Now, he was a man of some means. He was a respected member of the community, the leader of the community, and really the head of the synagogue there. But he does something because he's got a daughter who is sick. And that little girl was a daddy's girl, and apparently she had Jairus wrapped right around that little pinky, and I understand that experience. And he would do anything for her. Only one child. That was her. She was the apple of daddy's eye. And when she got sick, he got panicked because there was nothing he could do. He had tried everything he knew. He'd called the best doctors. And doctors are wonderful. They're even more wonderful today because they can actually do something today. And back then, not so much. But they can do something. But even then, there are limitations for doctors. He tried everything. And so he goes to Jesus because he knows he can heal. And remember, the people in Jerusalem had, were already turning against Jesus. They were kind of upset with him, and they, they realized they had to do something about this guy. And so Jairus was aware of that. He was aware that that reputation and that relationship with those people was important to him, but not nearly as important as his daughter. So he did something that no self-respecting Jew would ever do, and especially a leader of the Jews, especially one so important in his own community, he throws himself at the feet of Jesus and begs the man. This well-dressed, important, wealthy man, when he came to his daughter, forget the money, forget the reputation, forget my clothes, forget the people in Jerusalem, I don't care. He was on his face begging Jesus. That's an interesting posture. All pride, all self-sufficiency blown away because my little girl is sick. He's panicked. He cannot imagine life without this child. And so he throws himself at the feet of Jesus and begs him to come to his house. Verse 42, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. So she's a 12-year-old girl. Now it's important to remember how old she is because that number 12 is going to come back a little bit later we're going to remember that as well but she's 12 years old which by the way in that culture meant that she was probably a couple of years removed from getting married I mean, that, that was the culture and that's really what would usually happen sometimes as young as 12 but usually about 14 to 16 is when girls would be married he realized he didn't have long with her but oh he loved that girl he'd beg and he was imploring Jesus, please, come to my house, heal my daughter, please. And so Jesus started with him. But as they were going, the crowd was pressing in. They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to be a part of him. And it was, it was hard to make their way. I can just see Jairus right now holding Jesus' hand, maybe pushing the crowd away, trying, get out of the way. We've got to get there. Time is precious. My girl is dying. Please. Trying to drag Jesus through the crowd. Panicked. 
Will we be in time? Will we be in time? Just scared. I've got to do something. Why won't these people let us through? Verse 43. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for how long? Twelve years. For twelve years, and could not be healed by anyone, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Twelve-year-old girl who for all of her life, all of her twelve years, knew beyond any shadow of a doubt she was a daddy's girl. But this woman had a hemorrhage. She was, had an issue of blood, it says in some translations, which made her unclean. That means if she was married, her husband could not touch her in the husbandly way because that would make him unclean. That means he could not worship in the synagogue. He could not go to temple unless he went through a week-long, one to two weeks worth of a very expensive, costly, time-consuming purification ceremony. And so if she had been married when this started, the chances were very good that she was no longer married because a man could divorce a wife in those days if she burned dinner, much less for 12 years of not being able to touch her. 12 years of not having access to her as your wife. 12 years of her being in this condition. It would be a rare man who would remain married to her in those days. 12 years since she had been able to be in polite society. In fact, she wasn't supposed to be out here in a crowd because she was impure. She was unclean according to their law. And so if someone bumped into her, they were unclean whether they knew it or not, according to their ceremonial law. And so she was taking a risk. She obviously had to cover her face so no one could recognize her, wear something that no one would recognize, that it was her. She made her way through the crowd because she just knew if she could just touch the hem of his garment, that's all, just a touch, she would be made well. And so she risked everything. There could be condemnation, there could be stoning, all sorts of things if she was found out about people. If, they, if she was with them and they found her, there were some severe penalties for this because she put the entire community at risk according to their law. But she knew this was her only chance for healing. And somehow she pressed in against the crowd, pushing people aside and as he went by, boom, one touch and immediately she was made well. She was made well. The hemorrhaging stopped. She felt it in her body. She felt in ways she had not felt in 12 years. If she was ever a daddy's girl, the last 12 years she did not feel like one. That pain, not just the pain of the hemorrhage and how tired that left her, not just the pain of, of whatever else happened in her body during those times, but just the pain of being ostracized. Persona non grata in the community. She couldn't fellowship with her, her fellow her girlfriends, the, the, her friends in the community. She couldn't be with her husband if indeed she was still married. If she had children, she couldn't be with them. She was alone in the world. Absolutely alone. She felt rejected by God, rejected by man, rejected by her society, her community. She was an outcast, a reject. The pain has a way of isolating us. Maybe it's the pain of depression. Maybe it's the pain of the weight of your own guilt and shame. 
Maybe it's the pain of rejection by friends, by family. Maybe it's financial pain. And all of that's real. The physical pain, the emotional pain, the relational pain. It isolates you. It makes you myopic. All you can see is your pain and the source of that pain. You focus on it entirely because it's just so overwhelming. And you feel unloved and alone. That was this woman. If you've ever been there, man, I've been there. Depression. I've, I've had wonderful health. But man, there have been times that things that have happened in my life that made me feel alone and isolated and unloved. Where I began to doubt the goodness of God in my life. I knew what the scripture said, but my emotions told a different story. That woman had to feel this way. To be told God is good and yet to spend 12 years in this condition, are you kidding me? It had to be overwhelming for her. But the moment she touched him, all that was gone. She was clean. She could no, go now and present herself to the physicians, to, to the priest, be declared clean, enter into her regular life now. The pain of rejection was gone. The, the pain of her physical problem was gone. Everything was gone. In that moment, she began to breathe more easily, just amazed by what God had done for her as she touched the hem of his garment. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. She was hoping to sneak away unnoticed so no one will know what I've done here. I kind of violated all the rules, but it worked. She's hoping to get away with it, and Jesus said, no, it's not going to happen. Jesus stopped. Verse 45, and Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, get this, the whole crowd is pressing in on him. He's trying his best to get to Jairus' house. They're pushing people aside trying to get there. And then he says, wait, who touched me? And they said, I didn't touch him. Did you touch him? I didn't, I didn't say anybody touched him. I didn't, it wasn't me. I don't have any idea who touched you. What do you mean? Who touched me? And it wasn't us. Everybody touched him and then they all lied about it. <laughs> Why? I don't get that. Who touched me? I didn't. I didn't. Did you touch I, We don't think anyone touched you. Finally, Peter speaks the truth. And while they were all denying it, Peter said, um, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. Everyone touched you. <laughs> what do you mean, who touched me? Everyone touched you. Verse 45, and Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? Uh, pardon, Jesus said, someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. It's a different kind of touching. Power has gone out of him. He realized that a miracle has taken place. Someone has been healed. He is made aware of that. How he knew that, I don't know. Uh, we could speculate. doesn't matter. But he knew something had happened. And he stopped and said, someone was just healed. I've seen evangelists do that on TV. And that is so hokey. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, but they don't know. They're making that stuff up. But Jesus said, who touched me? Someone was healed. Who touched me? Verse 47, when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Two people bowed before Jesus that day, Jairus and this woman. <laughs> One pleading and the other thanking. Thank you. 
confessing what she had done, and now I'm clean because of you. I'm whole. Jairus was back. Don't you know Jairus is now sick to his stomach? Seriously, woman, you had to pick this moment. I've got to get this guy to my house. My daughter's about to die. And he doesn't rejoice over the healing of this woman. I guarantee it. He's irritated. He's panicked. He's sick. But Jesus takes the time to celebrate what has just happened. He takes the time to point her out and to let her know something. Not only was she healed, but although the evidence of her life said otherwise, she was to that very day, every day of her life, a daddy's girl. Regardless of what any relationship she might have had with her earthly father, that was not the point. There was another one to whom she, she was a daddy's girl. And she was speaking to him right now. And look at how Jesus responds to her. And he said to her, daughter. A lot of things he could have called her. He called his own mother a uh, woman. It was a term of respect. It was a, so he could have said woman because that's how he addressed a lot of the, the women that, that, that he talked to in Scripture. Woman. It was a term of respect. But he doesn't go there. He calls her daughter. He calls her daughter because he wanted her to know just as this 12-year-old girl that I'm going to heal in a moment is a daddy's girl, so too are you. They've all declared you unclean. You're a daddy's girl. There's nothing unclean about you. They've all declared you to be a reject, an outcast, outside. Nothing wrong with you. You're a daddy's girl. Always have been, always will be. You are the apple of my eye. I'm taking the time right now to tell you that and to celebrate with you what has happened in your life, in your body. It was one thing for her body to be healed. Now her heart, her emotions, her soul needed healing. And that was the more important healing. That's the more important healing. More important than the physical healing was the emotional, the spiritual healing that she needed. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Live your life. Enjoy your life. Do it in peace. You're well because you're a daddy's girl. But there's a man right now who's sick. He's got to get Jesus there, and the news is going to get worse for him in just a moment. Verse 49, but while he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Can you imagine what Jairus is experiencing? I was so close. So, so close. I could have saved her. But this crowd and that incessant woman, I was so What's going on? Jesus understands what's happening. And immediately he turns to Jairus because he's a daddy's boy. And he doesn't want him to suffer because he knows what he's about to do. He says, wait a minute. Look what he says. Verse 50, but when Jesus heard this, he answered him, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. I don't care what he just told you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Be not afraid. 
That's the most frequently repeated negative command of scripture. Someone did a count, found 360 instances of this being repeated throughout Genesis to Revelation. If you want to know the one thing that Jesus doesn't want you to do is to be afraid. You're his follower, you're his child, you're a daddy's girl, a daddy's boy. He said, don't be afraid because I got this. No matter how bad it looks and no matter how hard it hurts, I got this. There's a day coming when it's all going to be made right. Don't be afraid. 365 times. One for every day of the year. <laughs> the one thing, wake up in the morning, you want to know the one thing he's telling you not to do is to be afraid. You go to a religious meeting and you come out of that meeting afraid? You felt a spirit there, but it was not a spirit of Christ because Jesus said, I've not given you a spirit of fear. He gives you love and joy and comfort and hope. He gives you courage, not fear. That's the, that's the element of Satan. He deals in fear. Jesus deals with hope and encouragement and assurance. So you walk out of that meeting with fear. There was a spirit there. It wasn't Jesus. You're a believer and you're a child of God. You're a daddy's girl, a daddy's boy, and he wants to comfort you. And he's saying to this man, don't be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. When he came to the house, verse 51, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter, John, James, the, the inner three, the close three, and the girl's father and mother. There's a reason for this. I'm going to tell you a little bit later. And people have speculated about it. I think I got it figured out. Here we go. Uh, verse 52, now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, stop weeping. She has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. Why was Jesus doing this? Well, number one, we, we believe about death that, that Jesus refers to it more than once as just a sleep. Um, a, a cessation of thought, cessation of, of, of life, but sleeping awaiting resurrection. That's when eternal life is bestowed upon us. So he refers to it as, as a sleep. But there's another reason why he's referring it, to it this way and not explaining like he did to the disciples with Lazarus. He's... He, he wants to cast doubt in their minds as to about whether or not this child is dead. And the reason he wants to do that, when, when the, the officials decided they wanted to kill Jesus, Scripture also says that they were thinking about getting rid of Lazarus too because you can't have someone who was dead for four days being raised again, running around, while well, you killed the guy who killed him, uh, who, who raised him, you can't do that because now he's alive telling everybody, they just killed the guy who raised me from the dead. You figured, did they do the right thing or wrong thing? They can't have that. And if you add this little girl to the list, she's next. I think Jesus is protecting her. That's why it only let the inner three and mom and dad in there and why he told everybody else, don't, don't cry, don't cry. She's just sleeping. They laughed at him, laughed him to scorn. It's all right, he wasn't afraid of that. He didn't mind that. He wanted there to be a doubt in their mind. Mom and dad would know the truth. That's okay. Mom and dad would know. The inner three would know. But we're going to protect this little girl. I believe that's why he's doing this here. Remember he told the madman who had just cast everything out, tell everybody you know about me? But he didn't want anybody to know about, this, about Jairus' daughter. I think he's protecting her. And they were laughing at him knowing that she had, had died. Verse 54, however, well, everybody's gone now, right? Just the three disciples, Jesus, mom and dad, and a little dead girl. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. 
child arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately. And he gave orders for something to be given to her to eat. Why? Well, not only is she 12 and always hungry, but this, a spirit doesn't eat. And he wanted to demonstrate to everyone she's alive, she's eating. She's not a ghost, she's not an apparition, she's not a spirit. This is a little girl who's eating. That means she's alive and this is real. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. He didn't make those instructions with Lazarus, but he's protecting the little girl. He's protecting her because he knows that those who hate him are out to get him. And they will go after her as well. I believe that Jesus healed two daddy's girls that day. One who knew she was a daddy's girl and the other who didn't. There's a side note to this story though. To every story of the healings of Jesus. And we've looked at some of those the last couple of weeks. Here's the sad truth. Everyone Jesus healed... And everyone he raised from the dead eventually died. The healings were temporary. Resurrection was temporary. In a way that's kind of sad. But in another way it speaks to the reality of the world in which we live. This side of heaven, all healing, all resurrections are temporary. Because death will be our experience because sin does its work on us. We live in a bad place and it's going to continue to be bad and none of us get out of this alive without Jesus. And he's telling you that because as important as that physical healing might be to you now, it's only temporary if you get it. I've prayed for people and anointed people and watched them heal. I've seen them where doctors said, I have no idea this was not me. I don't know what happened here. I've seen that on more than one occasion. Doctors say, I don't get this. There's no reason why this should be happening. One doctor Garrett, who offered the insurance company who asked him to transfer the patient to, a, to another physician, he said, don't, I don't want to get paid. I've got to follow this through. I don't know what happened to this man. I don't understand what's happening, and I want to follow it through. Don't pay me. I want to know. That's how convinced he was that something spectacular had happened. I've seen that happen. But every time I've seen that happen, I also know that something eventually will happen to them and they will die. And some of the people I've seen healed are dead now because the healing is temporary. I don't know why God chose to with some and not others. I prayed that my wife Gail would be healed of cancer. I've seen others healed of cancer. She wasn't. She died. Even if she had gotten that healing, that healing would have been temporary. This side of the second coming it's always temporary and when whether we get that healing or not that sends a message to us at times that we live on a bad planet but it also can send the message when we are denied the healing that maybe daddy doesn't love us after all the big picture is that our daddy our heavenly father does love us he's crazy about you and anything he gives you here will be temporary until he comes and changes the planet you live on. That's, that's what it's all about. Ultimately, he's got to change it. Or everyone here, someone's going to have our funeral. Uh, you can be healed, and yet someone's going to hold your funeral. 
And someone's going to cry over you. We hope. You know, I hope. Someone cries over me. Otherwise, I've really messed up. I, I, don't, I want someone to cry. That's pretty cool, you know. They care enough to cry, but uh, that's going to happen. It's going to happen. Unless Jesus comes and fixes it. And when it doesn't happen for us that we get the healing, sometimes we think it says that Jesus doesn't love us. I got a friend in the area, uh, an older man, his name is, we'll call him Jim. Jim and his brother Bobby, uh, their father died when they were very young. And then their mother remarried, and the man she remarried at first seemed so charming and wonderful, but as soon as the ink was dry on that wedding certificate, that marriage certificate, he turned into his true self, and he was caustic, angry, abusive, critical, fault-finding, demeaning. We can, the list goes on. Every moment of their lives became a living hell. They were told that they were nothing, that they were worthless, that they were scum. They were treated like scum from a man who was abusive. And in order to be that abusive, you have to be emotionally off. Narcissistic personality disorder is a starting point, and it goes from there. That means that his, every day of his life, this was the message given to him by this new father. Our earliest pictures of God come from our fathers. Psychologically, we know that's true. If our father was loving and accepting and warm and, and cared for us, then we see God the Father that way. If our father was distant, we see God that way. If our father is cruel and sadistic and mean, that's how we see God. This boy grew up with that kind of a picture of God. Jim was beaten by that. He underachieved because he also went to a church that was very legalistic, very works-oriented, and the problem with legalism is you're never good enough. Performance-based religion is destructive and is by its nature abusive because you never measure up. And that seemed to reinforce the message he already had from his stepfather, that he was worthless, that he didn't measure up, that he was a waste of space. And the church seemed to be telling him that, so that's how he viewed God, and he was a broken man. He still went to church. I don't know why, but he did. One week, his friends decided to come over to the church where I was preaching, the church I pastored, and he heard a different message. He heard about a God who actually loved him. Same denomination, different message. A God who loved him, who considered him the apple of his eye. And he thought, that's not the God I know. But he liked it, so he came back the next week. Two months, he was coming to my church. It was a big church, and I didn't know he was there. And then he, he called up and asked for an appointment with me. And through months... I had regular appointments with this man as the stories just unfolded, the venom, the hurt, the anger, the resentment, the pain. And now how he was trying to change his thinking from what he felt to be true about God to what he knew had to be true about God because I had shown him in Scripture the reliability of that picture. It's a slow transition and the emotions lagged behind what he thought he had in his head. It was a slow change for the brain and struggling with it. One day he came and said, I've got cancer. We prayed for healing. He, he continued with the treatments and was declared to be cancer free. God has healed me. About 
about a year and a half later, two years, I can't remember, cancer came back. He said, I, why wouldn't God keep it away from me? Doesn't he love me? He's struggling. Every, every bad thing that happens now seems to reinforce the old programming. God doesn't care for me. I'm worthless. Cognitively, he may have the truth, but that God loves him, cherishes him, that he is a daddy's boy, always has been. It's just hard for him to feel that's true. He may hear it and think it's true, but to actually make that leap to trust it and to believe it and to embrace it with these emotions, man, that's hard. I don't know what's going to happen with Jim. He's still struggling. I keep telling him the truth. I hear you, Mike. I believe it. I believe it. And yet my heart, I'm just so tired. Maybe you're like Jim. Maybe you are. Maybe you're on that road to Wellville and you're wanting a healing emotionally, mentally, physically. I don't know what it is. I don't know what God's going to choose to do in your life. I know he can heal you like that. But I don't know if he will, this side of heaven. What I do know is that the road to Wellville eventually takes us to heaven. And that's where every healing is afforded us. Everything is made right. Everything is new. And so completely will you be healed then that you will never hurt again. You understand that? That's the ultimate in Wellville. That's when we make it. Your diet notwithstanding, your exercise notwithstanding, your prayers for healing, your receiving of healing notwithstanding, your failure to receive it, it doesn't matter. If he heals you spiritually now, where you embrace him, the road to, El to Wellville ends up with eternity. And that's the healing you want. He's promised it.